please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. It's where our attention will be focused today. In fact, today, both this morning and this evening, on Ephesians 6, and probably for a few more Lord's Days yet. I'll start at verse 10 and read through verse 20 of Ephesians 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly, as I ought to speak. Amen. Well, let's once again look to God and ask for his help in prayer before we begin looking at the word of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would open it up to us through the preaching of the word today. Help me to speak what is true to speak it faithfully, and bless and attend this preaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that all who hear will not simply be hearing the wisdom of men, but that they will hear the word coming in power, in demonstration of the Spirit and power, as Paul says, for the good of their souls, so that their faith might not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to be preaching a number of messages that are based on messages that were originally preached in last month's basketball camp. You may recall that on the Sunday evening, before that camp began, Pastor Khan preached from either verse 10 of Ephesians 6 or verse 11 through verse 13. 
And then it was my task to preach through the rest of, of this passage, going through verse 18 and addressing the specific parts of the armor of God. And I have been asked by different people and encouraged by my fellow pastors to preach those messages, or maybe they're a little, going to be a little bit enlarged, um, but hopefully not too much, uh, here in the church. And I thought I should do it before I forgot the things I said, and also because we happen to be at a very good point in Romans, there's, there's quite a significant, um, um, in some ways, significant break between Romans 5.11, which I just finished last week, and Romans 5.12, which I'll start before too long. So this is a good place to do this. And I'll just begin for an introduction by giving you the headings of Pastor Khan's Sunday evening sermon at the beginning of the basketball camp when he focused on verses 10 through 13 of Ephesians 6. He had three headings. And the three headings were, first of all, the call to battle. If you look at verse 10 and into verse 11, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. There's a battle and you need to be ready for it. So there's the call to battle. You see the similar thing in the beginning of verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. If you're a Christian, then you are involved in a war. So that's the call here, the call to battle. We are in a war. The second thing is the enemy exposed. And that's the last part of verse 11 and verse 12. After he said, put on the whole armor of God, he gives a reason that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's the foe. He's the enemy. But it's not just the devil. It's his whole army, if you will. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So it's the devil we're doing battle against, but other spiritual forces as well. There are hosts of these powers, principalities and powers, spiritual beings with spiritual power. Let me just mention, I took a lengthy time to do it in the basketball camp, relatively speaking, but just briefly just mention a few facts about the devil. If you've been a Christian for long and you know your Bible, you know these things. They're elementary to us, but perhaps they're not to everyone sitting here. I presume they're not. But just quickly, some of the things the Bible says about the devil, and many of these things are also true about all the demons that are these principalities and powers that we battle against. The devil is a person, if you will, not a human, not a human being, but a personal being. He's a spirit, just like God is both a spirit and a personal being. And that's what we see in verse 12. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the devil, like God, is a person, he's a spirit, but unlike God, he is not omnipresent, he's not everywhere, though 
Perhaps he has wide latitude to go wherever he wants in this world. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. But he's been around a long time, thousands of years. He's studied sinful men a lot. And he knows a lot. He may know more about your weaknesses and areas of sin than you do. If you're a Christian, for shame that that may be the case. But he knows a lot, but he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. He is wicked. In verse 14 that I just read, he's called the wicked one. And we can say that it's through the influence of the devil that sin even came into the world. Genesis chapter 3 with the temptation. He's wicked, as I said in the basketball camp. There is nothing good about him. He is all sin, all the time. And he is very malicious. At the same time, he is already defeated, and he will be finally defeated. Romans 16, 20 tells us that if you're a Christian, the God of, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's been defeated already, and he will be finally defeated for certain, but for now, he still has some liberty, and he still has some power. We're told in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, that he prowls around, he roars like a lion, and he seeks people whom he may devour. And he has devoured many, many thousands over the generations of this world, millions we can say, and he is in the process of devouring millions more. And therefore, in light of these things, that this is our enemy, along with his spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, you and I need to realize that we are not only in a battle, but we are in a very serious battle, a battle that has very high stakes. The stakes are life and death. They are heaven and hell. And still, as Christians, if we're Christians, though all these things are true about the devil and the stakes are so high in the, this battle, as Jesus taught us, we should not fear the devil. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28, that we should not fear someone who can only kill our body. And the devil, we could say, has power to do that. I think he's lumped in that group of those who can kill the body, but that's the most he can do. But he will one day be crushed under our feet as the people of God. And as we saw in Habakkuk this morning, when God crushes his enemies, it's for a dual purpose, not just to bring justice to the wicked, but to bring salvation for his people. So we should not fear the devil. But we should resist him. Think of James 4, verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And in following this passage that's before us and will be before us for a few weeks here, we resist the devil in a large measure by using the armor or using the weaponry that is depicted here and that is listed here 
in this passage. William Gurnall, and I'll say more about this in a few moments, he was a Puritan, and he wrote a book on this passage, and he said in that well-known book, Satan is such an enemy as is only to be met with by resisting. He is cowardly, encroaching, and accusing. That is, he will sneak, he will wait, and he will seize every bit of ground that is available to him and that is left unguarded. So we need to know about his wiles, as we read about in verse 11, and we need to resist. He has, as another Puritan wrote, Thomas Brooks, in a book, a book called a Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he wrote about all different designs and devices or schemes or wiles that the devil uses, and then he wrote about many biblical remedies against those devices of the devil, and the point is just to say that the devil has many devices. So all these things, in a way, are ominous. They're threatening. And in a sense, they should put a healthy fear in our hearts. But God, and this is the point of Paul's writing this here, God has given us armor. And we should learn about that armor, that great provision that God has given us, and then we should arm ourselves with it. We should put on the armor and we should go forth to the battle or the battle comes to us. We don't really need to go forth if we put it in terms of what we see in this passage. And we should say, God has given me everything I need for this battle. Let me learn how to use it and then get at it. So that was a large expansion of uh, Pastor Khan's second point there, the enemy exposed, verses 11 and 12. And then his third and final point in that message was the victory assured. The last part of verse 11, we've read it already a couple of times. Paul is giving us this information, telling us to put on the whole armor of God, as he says there, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In other words, you will be able to do that if you do what Paul says here. So the victory is assured. And then verse 13, the last part of the verse, Paul states it again, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. There's a sense in which the entirety of our life is the evil day because every day of our life we are in this battle. Or if you look at it this way, if the evil day means the worst it gets during the course of your Christian life and your time on this earth, that you may be able to stand in that day. The point is, with this armor and with God having your back, you will be able to stand. We should have confidence in this armor and in the God who gives it. So the victory is assured. So there's the call to battle, the enemy exposed, and the victory assured. And then before we jump into our text, which is verses 14 to 18, I want to just give you a few more introductory matters related to the things I'm going to be preaching. And let me start out where I often end with messages like this, but that is a word to unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever sitting here, you're not a Christian, you understand up front, you do not have this armor 
available to you. My son was a Marine, and when I went to his, um, can't remember what they called it now, but when he was in officially inducted, in, oh, it was his graduation from boot camp, that's what it was, and I went there, one of the, uh, I think it was the commandant of the Marine Corps barracks there in San Diego, said to all of us sitting there, he says, you, meaning people like myself and my wife, whose son was graduating, you are now part of the Marine Corps family. <laughs> Thank you. But I soon realized it doesn't mean I had all the access to everything that was in the barracks and uh, especially in the uh, munitions depot or whatever it was where all the weapons were stored. And it's that way for you. If you're not a Christian, you're not an actual Marine, you can't use those M16s and whatever else it was that they used and their, their mortars and all those kinds of things. Um, you don't have this weaponry available to you. It only is for Christians, but it's given to every Christian. But still, if you are not a Christian, the devil is involved in your life. He just doesn't have to work as hard to, take, to devour you. In a sense, he has you in the palm of his hand. He leads you like by a nose ring around wherever he wants. And he's leading you on the path to hell. Like Jesus says, broad is the road that leads to destruction. The Pied Piper that leads people down that road is the devil. And he is deceiving you even about the fact that that's what your life is apart from Jesus Christ. It's a life that's just a broad road that leads to hell. Like it says in 1 John chapter 5, the whole world, that means everybody who is not a Christian, lies in the evil one. Or some translations put it, is in the hand of the evil one. That's the devil. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the God of this age, and this is true of you if you are not a Christian, the God of this age has blinded your minds. So bear that in mind. But good news, there's good news regarding this. Like I said, you're not part of the people of God who have this weaponry, this, this armor available to them, but you can be. And that is by um, answering the question in days to come, who is on the Lord's side? We sang that. Just answer that question, well, I'm not right now, but I'm going to be. And repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus Christ we read in 1 John 3, verse 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested. That means He was revealed when He came into this world. For this reason the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God is Jesus Christ, and He is your only hope. But He is such a great hope that if you put your trust in him, he will destroy the works of the devil that presently are keeping you in bondage and ultimately will keep you from heaven and take you to hell if you continue in your present state. May God deliver you from the designs and the schemes of the wicked one.
That's my first word of introductory matters here as we come to our text. The second one is a book recommendation of all things, but I thought I should include it. I mentioned William Gurnall, who wrote the book entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. It's one of the best-known books among all Puritan literature. Joel Beakey, who publishes Christian literature, a lot of Reformed literature, wrote this. He said, this is the most well-known of the Puritan manuals on spiritual warfare and has provided much spiritual comfort for beleaguered saints over the centuries. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Gurnall's work is peerless and priceless. Every line is full of wisdom. Every sentence is suggestive. He especially meant for preachers there when he said every sentence is suggestive, but it's suggestive for all of us. And John Newton wrote this. He said, if I might read only one book beside the Bible, I would choose the Christian in complete armor. So that's high praise for a book. And so I, I give a strong recommendation for this book. It was at least based on sermons that William Gurnall preached to his congregation back in the 17th century. And the Banner of Truth edition of this book, it actually was published, I think, in two volumes by the Banner of Truth, but then it was put together. So I have one of those. It's about this thick. It's 1,200 pages. Um, there is an abridged paperback edition of three volumes if you don't want to read such a big book. But if you want to study this subject, I can't highly recommend this book enough. Um, Gurnall basically took this passage here of 10 verses or so, and then he delivered an entire doctrinal and practical theology of the Christian life. That's what it is. That's what his book is. It's not really just an exposition of this last part of Ephesians chapter 6. I, just so you can be encouraged, am not going to follow Gurnall's approach. Just a handful of sermons. Um, if I start getting close to 10, you can come and um, admonish me and I'll keep it under 10 for sure. So that's the second word of, of uh, introduction, a book recommendation. And then the third is this. Accordingly, in light of what I just said about not giving you um, whatever number of sermons that must have been, 120 or however many, if we say 10 pages per sermon, I am not going to try to explain all the details of each piece of first century armor and then draw a comparison to some spiritual lesson when I come to each piece of armor and make some specific spiritual application. That's not my approach. I'm not saying it's no use to do that. I'm not poo-pooing what Gurnall did. But like I said, he really didn't give just an exposition of the passage. He gave an entire theology of the Christian life from the perspective of the spiritual battle that we're in. And one of the reasons I, I think that, that you can get overly fine with doing that kind of thing and we shouldn't press all the particulars too far is that we find in the Bible a mixing of the metaphors that Paul uses here in this passage. We won't take the time to turn to them other than one place. But Paul is not saying that he expects us to find every possible similarity between each piece of armor 
and then explain how it works with that particular grace or blessing from God that goes with that piece of armor, like the shield of faith. Now, you can do that, and I highly recommend that you meditate on every last thing you can press out of that metaphor. It'll be good meditation. I remember when Pastor Martin was teaching us to preach in the academy one time, he was telling us about the importance of illustration. And he said, one of the things you could do to become a better illustrator of God's truth is sit in your study and just focus on one item in your study. And think of all the different ways you can illustrate spiritual truth. He said, for instance, a wastebasket. And that might seem strange or funny, but if you, if you really try to engage in that exercise, there are a lot of spiritual lessons you could bring out of something even like a wastebasket. Well, how much more than a shield when the Bible tells us about the shield of faith? But there are several passages in the Old Testament, for instance, where either God, which would be God the Father, or God His being, or in some places the Messiah, are called our shield. You see what I'm saying? The metaphors are mixed. So it's not like there's this whole theology that's built into every one of these metaphors. Let's just take one place in the New Testament, a couple of books away from here, is 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, and notice verse 8. In Ephesians 6, we have the breastplate of righteousness, and we have the helmet of salvation, but notice in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, what Paul says, even the same author. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. So here it's not the breastplate of righteousness. It's the breastplate of faith and not the shield of faith and the breastplate of faith and love. And then for a helmet, he says, not the helmet of salvation per se, but the helmet of the hope of salvation. You see my point. So I'm not going to say, look, Paul's trying to tell us that, you know, we need to go down every possible um, road and path to find out exactly what he's saying here. He's saying these things are armor for you. Let's see how we should use them. And I'm not going to preach a series of 120 messages, but hopefully a half a dozen or so. So my approach is going to be just to aim to discern some of the main points of similarity between this piece of armor and that, and this grace or that, and then preach those truths. So those are my introductory matters as we come to our text, which starts with verse 14. As we come to the text, then, we're going to begin with verse 14, the first part of the verse, and that says, stand therefore. And that's all it is, stand therefore. That's where I'll stand today. We start out with the admonition to stand. And then we'll get into the specific pieces of armor this evening. Paul is saying we are to stand our ground. We are to resist. James 4, 7 again. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. To stand means that you are to maintain 
the ground where you are. You are to hold your ground. That's what some units in military, um, in, in armies, um, that's what some units are commanded to do. They're not commanded to go forward. They're not commanded to destroy enemy um, positions that are far away from them at present. They're not commanded to go from where they presently are into a foreign country, for instance, and try to take that country. They're just told, hold your position. And that's the language Paul uses here. Stand. And notably, you've probably heard this if you've heard sermons on this passage before, most of the armor that is listed here is defensive armor. So the idea is someone's coming to try to take your ground. Someone's coming at you. You were just minding your old business. That's how a lot of wars start. You're just minding your own business. Your enemy comes at you for whatever reason. Maybe he has what he thinks is a good reason. Maybe he knows it's an evil reason, but he's doing it. It's like the devil. But what you need to do then is stand to resist him. So you don't have these offensive weapons that would be useful if you're trying to take a city, for instance, a fortified city. There's no catapult. There's no battering ram mentioned. No bow and arrows to shoot at people who are at a distance. You have weapons that you use to resist an enemy coming at you and for fighting in close quarters. Not bow and arrow or a sling, but a sword. And because you are not only the soldier, this is the idea of why you are to stand, there's a sense in which in this battle with the devil, you are the battleground. Think in terms of John Bunyan's other famous allegory, not as famous as Pilgrim's Progress, but he wrote another one called The Holy War. And that's an allegory, uh, a story that's kind of like taking almost something like a parable and trying to tell it in terms of spiritual lessons and comparisons. So the Bunyan's book, The Holy War, is about the devil trying to retake the town of Mansoul. In other words, the devil doesn't necessarily want the ground you stand on. He doesn't. He wants you. And so you need to resist him. And so this is why Paul gives this admonition, stand. Just stand there. It doesn't mean stand there and do nothing. Stand there and fight, but don't give up the fight and don't give up the ground. Now, we do as Christians want to advance and we want to conquer and we want to take more ground for Christ, if you will. That, we want to do that in our Christian life. We want to do that in our kingdom labors. We pray for that, don't we? Thy kingdom come. It's not just praying, come soon, Lord Jesus. It's also praying, Lord, expand your kingdom. Take more territory. Let the gospel come in mighty ways into Muslim countries that are shut to the gospel right now. Bring more people under the sway 
of the reign of Jesus Christ. We want that to happen more and more through the preaching of the gospel. So it's not like Paul is saying, no, no, the Christian life is not about advancing. It's just about standing. But he is saying it is first and in some ways foremost about doing just that. Holding your ground. Because if we don't hold our ground, there will be no advancement that's worth the name advancement. And he tells us to do this, brethren, because this spiritual battle is very intense and very difficult. And therefore, if you do stand your ground, you will be doing a lot. If you just stay in one place and don't even advance, if you will, you will be doing a lot. If you maintain your ground and don't giving up, give it up, you will be doing well. It's similar to a point I preached back in the early um, verses of Romans chapter 5. I think it was the last message I preached on the first five verses. And I made that point in one of the messages. And I said, somebody you know, is struggling greatly in their life. You know, maybe they've gone through some in, very intense afflictions, maybe one after another, or one affliction that's just a real prolonged aff- affliction. And because of the difficulty they're facing, I talked, uh, for instance, about someone with cancer, how it, it's, they think, like, I can't, I can't do, they know, I can't do what I normally do on a given day, and I feel like, therefore, I'm failing. And I made the point, look, if in the evil day... You still just stand. You're still in the faith. The devil has not taken over your life. He's not caused you to turn away from Christ. You're doing a lot. You should take heart from that. Or think of it in terms of Jude in verse 3, where Jude says, Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What's the goal there? You've been given the gospel. It's all written down. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all given to the saints. What is the goal there? To advance on that faith? To make it better? To have new, a new and improved gospel? Is that the goal? No. The goal is to stand and make sure that you're still saying 10 years from now what Paul said 2,000 years ago. That's what you're called to do in the Christian life, and that's great if you do it. It's like with the church. The goal of the church of Christ is not, I'm not saying at all, but I'm saying in the main things, like its doctrine and its practice overall, the goal of the church is not to change with the times. I, th- I think of an, an ad I got one time. I was in Minneapolis. And um, it said something like, it was a new church that was advertising itself, or maybe it was just a church that had been around for a while, but just changed its name, you know, to some name that you would say, why would anybody name a church that? You would get those kinds of things. So... Um, And I won't throw out any names because all I can think of now is names of actual churches. But the ad said this. Definitely not your grandfather's church. Now, my two reactions to that are, well, thanks be to God because my grandfather was not in a good church. 
But I think their point was, no matter what church your grandfather was in, because it's at least several decades old, it's probably not a good church. And they would say, this is something just very different from anything your grandfather ever would have recognized. And brethren, usually, given the differences, a statement in an ad like that is really something to lament, not to rejoice over. No, it's, we're being called to stand. So whether it's to contend for the faith or just not let someone destroy your soul like the devil, because that's what he wants to do. We're called here to stand. And think of it this way. Over time, if you just do that, if you just stand, there's a sense in which it's heroic. You don't advance one meter or one mile as part of an army, but you just stand where you at, you're at. Let's look at an illustration of that in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 to 12. 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 to 12. Here's a good picture with some of these mighty men of David. I once heard, read an article, I think it was in the Banner of Truth magazine decades ago, and I think the title of it was The Excellence of Plodding, P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G. In other words, just moving forward in your Christian life, but it's just doing it very slowly, often for the individual Christian himself, discouragingly slowly. That's why I use a word like plodding. It doesn't sound very... Um, romantic or exciting but the guy's article was the excellence of plotting in other words if you just keep going in the same straight path even if it's taking you a long time and your progress is slow you still end up making progress well we could think of it this way the bible teaches the excellence of standing not even taking steps but just holding your ground so let's read in second samuel 23 verses 8 to 12, about some of these mighty men of David. It says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Esnite. The, excuse me. My glasses aren't doing what I want them to do at this moment probably because my eyes aren't doing what I want them to do right at this moment. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. Then the people fled from the Philistines." But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, 
defended it and killed the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. So in other words, a great victory was won for a lot of people. And it was done especially on the back of one man who just stood in one place and stood his ground. And that's the way we should think of what Paul is telling us here. It may not be thrilling. It may not be like a spy. It may not be like a, a sharpshooter who goes to a certain place and then begins to pick off the enemy at a distance, etc. It may not be like a, a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot who runs on all these missions and hits the enemy right in their home turf. But this is what we're called to do. We're, we're called to be like this man there in verses 11 and 12, Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite, who defended that field of lentils and killed 800 men in the process, but won a great victory. I mentioned back when I preached that message in Romans chapter 5 about the language of the overcomers, the conquerors in the book of Revelation. They're going through difficult times of persecution. What was their victory? That they won thousands of souls to Christ? No! It's they didn't give up the faith. They kept holding fast to their Savior and Master and they were called by God, not people who, you know, did nothing but just hold their ground. They really didn't contribute to the effort. No, what are they called in the book of Revelation? Overcomers. And we're told that to them will be given the crown of life. Brethren, let's make that our great aspiration, to be people who stand our ground and don't give up and resist the devil so that he will flee from us. And remember that in the Christian life, you say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, it doesn't seem like I'm advancing and I'm not winning any great battles that I, anybody would look at and point at me. Remember, you, that's not the goal of the Christian life, that people will point, about, point at you and talk about you and write your brief biographical article even in the Banner of Truth someday when you go to glory. That's not the goal. The goal is to glorify God. It's to stand. It's to hold fast to the end, your profession that you made at the beginning of your Christian life. But brethren, if you engage in battles like that over and over and over and over again in the Christian life, what will be happening in your life, whether you realize it or not, is you will be getting stronger with every passing day and you will be getting godlier with every passing day. And God will give you more to do. Maybe it will be to do kingdom labors that you always pray that you might be able to do and wish you might be able to do. Or maybe it will just be that he will give you more difficult battles, more difficult afflictions that might include that will require greater work to just stand. But at the end, having done all, if you still stand, it will be a great, great victory. Resist the devil. 
James said, and he will flee from you. That was Jesus' experience in the desert, wasn't it? That was the time, at least until Gethsemane, when the devil gave him everything that he had in a concentrated way. And what Jesus did in that day was demonstrate to us how we should stand. We'll look at that later when we get to the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of truth. We'll use Jesus as an example as to how he fought the devil in that terrible day of temptation. But there's a sense in which all he did was stand his ground. He didn't do any miracles. He didn't perform any great feats that would bring a soldier a medal of armor. He just stood there and he resisted the devil. Could have done something notable like turn a piece of rock into a piece of bread, a loaf of bread, but he wouldn't because that wasn't part of standing his ground. He resisted, the, the, he resisted the devil and the devil fled. We're told in Luke 4 that he went away till a more opportune time. We can understand that the devil would flee when Jesus resisted him. But why would he flee from you? Why would he flee when you resist? I'll give you some reasons why. One, because God is greater than the devil. And if you're a Christian, he has given us this promise that if you resist him, he will flee. That's all we really need to know, but I'll tell you more. If you resist him, he will flee because not only has God promised that will happen, but God, it's easy for God to make it happen. God has Satan, in a sense, on a leash. He lets Satan do things to trouble his people like he let Satan trouble Job so terribly. But remember in that chapter of Job 1, Job couldn't do anything that God didn't permit him to do. He has Satan on a leash. You will not be able to be tempted above what you can bear. And with every temptation, God will provide a way out. He has Satan on a leash. Another reason that if you resist him, he will flee from you is because God is committed to you. And God is committed to your salvation. And another reason he will flee is something we also saw a few minutes ago, several minutes ago, that Christ has conquered him. As at once I heard a man preaching it, he said, ever since the cross, there's a sense in which Christ's foot is on the neck of Satan. And he hasn't pressed down all the way yet and given him the crushing blow. But like we saw, that crushing blow is coming. And that crushing blow was already given to the devil in the cross of Christ. And that means that, fifthly, the reason the devil will flee is because the writing is on the wall and the devil knows it. What he's doing now, he's doing, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like when he's in drastic straits. He, I can't remember it, but it'll come to me this afternoon while I'm eating. He's doing it because he doesn't know what else to do. He's trying everything. He's pulling out all the stops. He knows he'll never win because the writing is on the wall against him. And then also, you, he will resist you for this reason, because God has given us mighty weapons 
for this battle that he has placed us in. We, it's interesting what the scripture reading were both in the psalm about the, having a sword to fight our battles. And then the beginning of 2 Corinthians 10, talking about the weapons that we have that are not carnal. They're spiritual weapons like we have here and are strong for the pulling down of strongholds. Think of David regarding the sword of Goliath. Remember that one time he was out and he didn't have a weapon. He was running from Saul and he went to the high priest and he said, do you have any weapons here? I need a weapon. He says, well, with the only thing we have here is the weapon of Goliath, whom you killed. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Brethren, let's remember this. Goliath's sword, what a great weapon. We could even say David's sling, a greater weapon. The things that Mar the Marines handle better. And the things that the army handles, and I say that just because their funding is way, way above the Marines, far better. I mean, I, I, I'm just saying. Brethren, no earthly weapon can compare to this weaponry and this armor that God has given us in Jesus Christ, his son. And so I hope we are all listening with ears wide open as these things are laid out and you hear the preaching of the word of God. I mentioned this text in another one of my sermons, I think from Romans 5 earlier. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. Everything you need for the Christian life, God has given to you. Christ has purchased it. And it's not just that it's available to you, it is given to you already if you're a Christian. That includes this armor that we're looking at. So the Christian life, for me to close up this morning, the Christian life is a fight. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, when he came to the end of his life, he said to his companion Timothy, I have fought the good fight. He's talking about his Christian life. I've run the race. Now there's laid up for me the crown of life. Brethren, we're going to hear tonight especially about the grace of God and the great provision that we have in the gospel and in the great salvation we have and so on. It's all about grace. Our salvation is something that God accomplishes and we cannot contribute to it in an ultimate sense. But the reality is also that there is a battle and God has provided us armor for the battle. Armor because he expects us to fight. And it's great armor. And we could say this armor is invincible. And if you use this armor, you will be unbeatable no matter what battles you fight. But you need to take up the armor. And that's what we're going to get into. You need to fight. The question is, will 
you do it. And that's what we're going to be exhorted to do, just like Paul is exhorting his readers to do. His divine power, as Peter said, God's divine power has given to us all things, including all the armor we need for this spiritual battle we're in, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. And just one final closing word to unbelievers. Whoever can hear my voice sitting here, young or old, male or female, whoever you are, and believer and unbeliever alike, to everyone sitting here, you are in this war. It's just a matter of which side you're on. You're in the greatest spiritual battle that there is. I like to say to people, Christians, but even non-Christians, how goes the battle? Someone might say, what battle? Christians shouldn't say that, they should know it, but the battle is this. God is a king and his people are in a war. That's one way of looking at the Christian life. Paul obviously did it at the end of his life. He likened it to a race and he liked it to, likened it to a war. I've fought the good fight. And we're in a battle, and you are either with God, Scripture says, or you are against Him. Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. If you're not fighting against the devil, then you are fighting with the devil, and you are fighting against God. And the sad reality you need to wake up to is not only is God against you then, but so is the devil. He wants to drag you down to hell. And let me close with the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 31 and 32 of Luke 14. The apostle, the apostle Jesus said this, he said, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet, who come, meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. You may think you have a lot on your side in fact, I'll agree with you, you do. You have the whole world on your side if you're not a Christian. And that may make life pleasant for now, and it might make you feel safe for now. But when the going gets tough, and when the battle gets hot, and especially when the day of judgment comes, and the fighting is done. How is the world going to serve you then? How are all your friends, quote unquote, going to be then? Consider the battle that you're in. And while the day of judgment may still be a great way off, we don't know how far off it is, it's coming while it's still at least a ways off, 
Maybe what you need to do is send a delegation and ask God for conditions of peace. And if you want to say, how do I do that? Let me just make it very simple. Father in heaven, forgive me for my sins. Cleanse me in the blood of your son and take me as your child. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take these things and write them on our hearts. Help us as we look at the Christian armor to learn much about it, to learn things about ourselves, to learn about the devil, to learn how we should fight, and especially help us to learn how great is our God who in Jesus Christ has already overcome for us and who will keep us to the end through the use of this strong armor. And we ask it in his name. Amen.